pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. If we're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water, leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice on <laughs> it. I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> When will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everybody. Welcome, Welcome to one year. Is this like the one year official? We're pretty much at it. October 2nd, we dropped a podcast. And if I remember correctly, back in the day when we started, we wanted to bank up a ton of podcasts we had like we were really over prepared in a way we are not now today is not over prepared (laughs) no wow wow yeah it has to be our one year anniversary at this point wow that's that's just wild to me like I can't I can't wrap my head around that thank you for listening yes thank you everybody happy anniversary to you listeners as well and you're getting something in the mail from me because of this anniversary. I just realized that I don't think it has a note or anything and it's just going to show up. And I tend to do that to you. If you recall, I really confused you with a box of spin drift. I, I was like, did the robot send this? Where did this come from? <laughs> so I just realized that I should probably tell you when you get something weird in the mail, that's me because of this. All right. I'm excited now. We'll keep up. Yeah. Give an eye out for weird, weird mail. That can be your weird thing, maybe. We can even, it just can be this aurorabos of perpetuating. I'll send you things in the mail in case you don't have a weird thing for the week. Well, I never have a weird thing for the week. Um, It is the hardest thing to find. I don't understand why they're so difficult, but weird things. In fact, I picked this week's weird thing about 10 minutes before I logged in. So I'm excited. Okay. So happy anniversary for those of you who don't know what you're listening two and decided to air episode 21 of a podcast you've never heard of thank you for coming to agreement with me Catherine and me Michelle and in this podcast we come up with three things that we share with one another a weird thing a pop culture thing and a research thing and then we make them fit all together in a simple or increasingly not so simple statement that you can take with you for the rest of of your days. <laughs> it sounded ominous for your wa- for your waning time on earth. I know for the rest of we know something you don't know. No, um, <laughs> I just because I wanted to say week and then this is like bi weekly, which I just right. still after a whole freaking year. For the rest of your fortnight, a fortnight. <gasps> Let's bring back Fortnite for just such an occasion as this. For the rest of your Fortnite, have our fortune cookie. Fortune cookie for a Fortnite. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Whoa. I was talking to you, Michelle. I was like, I'm so tired. And I think that's directly related now to being slap happy. Yeah, no, I am. Um, this has been a real, not hard week, but just like 
um, trying week. Like I just, I just feel like my resources have been pulled and stretched and you might not be getting me at my peak performance today is what I'm saying. Stop happy and yeah. Worn thin. And we'll see, we'll see what it, where it goes. Stretched and slappy. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to stretched and slappy in the AM. Awoga. Okay. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> okay. So I go first this week. I chose my weird thing in part because it was presented to me by a loved one. Thank you. Um, thanks, Grant. And then it really made me laugh. It made me very happy. And it was thematic to one of my favorite things you have presented on this podcast ever, which was your birds a few fortnights back when you taught me all about birds and we had to think about duck penises. My husband told me about a book he saw on Twitter and it was just the cover of the book and no information, but that was enough It was a weird enough sounding book to tantalize me. And that book is called Ducks and How to Make Them Pay. I saw, I I actually, okay. As I was looking for my weird thing today, I almost picked that. How crazy is that? I saw one of these days where we have, someday we have to both choose the same thing. We've come close. Which, I mean, and this is not a new thing. Like this was an older image that was like, Reese. I don't, it's just funny. It's just funny That's how often we've like funny. almost picked like the, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. yes. Please tell it's, us about ducks and how to make them pay. It's by William Cook and it is, yeah, it's an older book and it is a weird title for a book. So I think it qualifies as weird. And what is this book about? How do we make ducks pay? What have they done to him? But I found it, and I'll link to it if anyone wants to read this book for educational purposes. I found um, an archival copy of it online. And the book starts with Mr. Cook telling us, quote, the original idea which led me to publish the first edition of this book was that there was a need for sound practical information upon a subject which if properly taken up, would be likely to lead to great results being attained in connection with an industry which would not only provide employment and remuneration for many, but also open up a way for families, both in town and country, to produce ducks for their own consumption, even where only the smallest accommodation existed. So, much to everyone's chagrin, this book is not about revenge on ducks, This book is about how to profit from ducks, how to make ducks pay you. So the joke here is obvious, but that doesn't mean I found this to be any less funny. So I apologize if everyone knows this already and if everyone has heard this five ways to Sunday, there are podcasts about this that like to discuss funny Amazon reviews, right? But I know all this and still I cannot help myself. I, I said, don't do this, Catherine. It's, it's, it's passe, no one cares. But I kept reading the Amazon reviews of William Cook's Ducks and How to Make Them Pay. And it just, it just delighted me so much that I have to share them with you. 
So here are some reviews on Amazon of this book, which you can get on Amazon for about $50. So Chris L says, disappointed in the content, one star. I was very excited to see this book. I've been keeping ducks in the backyard for several years and they're a lot of work. You have to keep them fed, let them out in the morning and put them safely into a coop before dark so that predators won't get them. And for all that, they chase you around, bite your legs and toes if you go out without shoes or wearing shorts and clamp onto your arms and leave bruises. Sometimes they even draw blood. So I saw this book and I thought, here's someone who's had similar experiences with ducks as I have, and he decided to make them pay. Well, I was sorely disappointed. I was expecting a book explaining the duck mind and how to most effectively exact revenge from them. But no, it's all about raising them as food and for money. Those ducks have been driving me crazy and I want to make them pay. <laughs> and so that's probably the most complex one, but Eowyn, one star disappointed. Not the duck specific revenge manual I was hoping for. <laughs> Benjamin, one star misleading title. This has nothing to do with seeking seeking recompense for ducks because of the things they've done. They deserve my wrath for what they have done. And I hoped this book was about that topic. So um, there is a five-star review, to be fair, that says the pictures of ducks in this book are really cute. <laughs> Worth it. $50 for duck pictures. Yeah, like I said, nothing new, but oh, it made me laugh. It made me laugh and laugh. So that's my weird thing. My larger weird thing then is once again, my love of humanity and how more, more often than not, that does stem from stupid internet yep. stuff. Yep. Like the, like the shit posting groups, like the, just you find the little joys where you can get them. Also this, your reading of the review about the ducks chasing you around <laughs> reminded me of a story from my childhood that I can't believe I'm about to say out loud for the world to potentially hear. Because <laughs> I know that it's, I know how it's going to make me sound. And I am not like, I am not the person who tells this kind of story because it is. Oh. Like, yeah. Um, so we had ducks when I was a kid. Um, at one point we had about 30 of them because they reproduce. I was, I'm sure the writer of ducks and how to make them pay is well aware um, and they were really, they were really cool to grow up with because like uh, the female ducks, they would nest together and they would face in opposite directions. So it looked like a two headed duck sitting on the nest and they would hatch their eggs together. And like, it was just, it was really cool to see like their social structures and the way that they um, like just the way that they interacted and we didn't eat them or anything. We just had a bunch of ducks wandering around. Eventually predators did get them there. We had um foxes got to our ducks but she was, she was just like a you know white duck her name was missy and she was from the original like five that we had that eventually became this big flock i i know how this story is going to sound but i promise you that this is the truth like i am so serious uh but we were on we had a rope swing hanging on an old um tree branch and my sister and I were like playing on it and we were like um spinning on it and playing and this duck was aggressively quacking and circling us and running at us. And we we're like, what is wrong? Because I mean, like these ducks at this point, like we had had her for a few years, like years. And, you know, we were around them all the time. They just sort of wandered on our property. We lived out in the country and she was just being so weird. And she was like running at us and she was quacking and like running in little and like circles and getting closer and closer. And then like, just, 
And and we would like walk away and she would stop and just wander off. And then we would go back and she would do it again. I'm like, what is wrong with this duck? And in one of those moments when we walked away, cause like she would not leave us alone. A big branch fell right where we were playing. <laughs> and so like, I, I don't know that like it would have hit, but it, it seems, it seemed like yeah. she, I mean, maybe she could like hear that it was falling. Like maybe, I don't know what duck maybe ducks and how to make them pay would tell me about their abilities but like I feel like she had some sort of sense that there was danger in that space um and so you're telling us Michelle here today that your life was once saved by a duck (laughs) I don't know saved I mean (laughs) you know I might have just broken a leg or something I don't know what the branch would have hit but but yes I was protected by a duck. Protected by a duck. At least once in my life. Life and limb better off because of Missy the duck. (laughs) And I know that sounds ridiculous, but it really truly happened. It was the quack of life. (laughs) Quack of life. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everyone. That's a story for never. That's an inside joke you don't get to hear about. Um That's I I actually don't think I've heard that story. That's very cool. And like, I mean, I guess it makes some sense. Like ducks heard their own babies away from like dangers. So she was probably like, stupid kids. You're going to, can you tell you're under a limb that's about to fall? I feel like that could be your weird thing. <laughs> could be my weird thing. So what is, that is right. a weird thing. That's, I think that's the weirdest thing we've had here. But what is your weird thing for the week? I have. Another, because again, I'm not very good at podcasting, another show and tell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not even going to say anything. I'm just going to play. What? Michelle. (laughs) Okay. I'm glad there's closed captions because otherwise it'd be like, Michelle discovered porn this week. Cool. (laughs) So this is vocal cords. In action, which isn't it really disturbing looking? It's um yeah, and amazing. Mesmerizing. I'll put the I'll put the um video. So the oh yeah, everyone, you have got to see this. Wow. (laughs) It looks like an like an alien or something. Okay. Um, but yes, and also not so vaguely pornographic. So um my weird thing is that. Um, earlier today, yeah, you can probably still tell I'm kind of forced. <clears throat> I taught three classes today that I ended up talking in a lot. Like they were very um, lecture heavy where I ended up doing a lot of the talking. And by the third one, like I kind of, somebody had asked me a question and while I was answering it, I kind of like was coughing and I had to stop and take a drink. And then when I went to talk again, I just couldn't make any sound. And I was oh, like, no. oh, this is not great in the middle of teaching this class. And I remember that this used to happen to me around this time of year when I was teaching um, in a college, I would lose my voice for one day around, around this point. And I used to think I'm like, oh, am I getting sick at the same time every year? How weird is that? But I think that it's because like, um, that's when I would start doing lecturing again at the, like, Mm. you know, and those first, those first days of school are when I have to talk a lot because like you're, you're giving the like, this is. This is, um, you know, all the class. Let's go over the syllabus. These are the class rules. And you don't know me yet. So you won't talk to me even when I build time in for it. All of that, right? So you end up talking, talking, talking. And I think my vocal cords are just like, no. <laughs> like 
this is so so I was reading about vocal cords um to because to, I was just like why does that happen like what what will make them give out like that and um so there is a mental floss article which is where I found the link to this video that is just facts it's called 15 throaty facts about yeah. vocal cords <laughs> and I'm not going to read all 15 of them to you but I did want to just pick out some interesting information about your vocal cords it's basically a reed instrument so it's set up in the what? same way like a like a reed instrument um air bursts through closed vocal cords and as the air rushes through the vocal cords the pressure between them drops up and sucking them back together so it's like you know like an oboe or a they, well, they look terrifying. That was one of the facts. That's why they linked to the video. Um, they sad. are different in singers. So singers um, not, don't necessarily have an innate the talent with their vocal cords, but the training of them changes the actual um, structure of the way that the strength of the vocal cords for singers. And also people who speak a lot or who um, sing a lot are warned against whispering too often because whispering does not use your vocal cords and it can make them weaker or are you practicing your whispering? Sorry. I just wanted to feel how it sounded different, which again, great for podcasting. Let's do visuals. And then I'm going to quietly whisper over my co-host as she talks. Yeah. Whispering them constricts the vocal cords and it can potentially fatigue them and dry them out. So you should not whisper a lot if you are somebody who needs to use your voice a lot. Mm. And another cool thing about them is that the widest vocal range of any human is held. The Guinness World Record for this is held by a man named Tim Storms from Missouri. And he has a 10 octave range which if is compared to Mariah Carey, who is known for her range, and it is only five octaves. But oh, wow. um, Tim Storms has a very, very, very low vocal range. So he described it. I watched a video of him, which I can also send them with him singing. Uh, he actually can go so low that the human ear can't hear it. And so he was describing it as he's so far low that if you went all the way to the left of the piano and put an entire piano's length of keys, that's how far his lowest octave can go. How does, does he just feel it? That's, I guess he feels that he is doing it. Yeah, I guess they can record it maybe with, I don't know enough about this to make it. This is not comments. your research thing. This is not my reason. This is just a weird thing. <laughs> but yeah, they must have to, they must, there must be some ability to record it. Cause you know, we can record sounds that we can't hear normally and then yeah. like capture them and I just wonder what that's like for him. That has to be cool yeah. to make. Like, <laughs> why do I keep wanting to make the noises? Because I'm slap happy. <laughs> I just tried to make a low noise. Nope, nope, nope. This is about to just devolve into whale sounds. Oh. <laughs> yep, it did. It did for a second. I'm too suggestible. So, yeah, that's my weird thing. Vocal cords, they're weird. <laughs> that brings us to pop culture pop culture this was almost my weird thing because like one of my very very first weird things ever this is something that arrived in the mail and I thought it was weird because I'm like where did this come from 
But then it wasn't my weird thing because I just remembered that I bought it <laughs> myself. <laughs> it came from me. Not even. Oh, not only thing. do you send me weird things in the mail, but you send yourself weird things in the mail. Yes. And this is pretty boring in that I just bought it and it took me, it took four months to get to me. Sometimes I do buy things in my sleep. I've done that once. I bought um, lipstick in my sleep. And once right after I got my COVID vaccine, I was a little fevery and I bought some potato chips in my sleep. They were amazing. They were honey, Korean honey butter potato chips. Mm. Amazing. Thank you, fevery Catherine. But this wasn't even, yeah, a weird purchase. It's something I bought and forgot about. And I'm so happy it came. But it's pop culture because... I was influenced to buy it by a podcast. Eight boxes of pasta. Oh. Have you heard of a podcast called The Sporkful? I have heard of it. Yes. It's a podcast I like a lot and it's fairly old. It's at least, it's like at least a decade old. I listened to it when I was in grad school and it's really evolved and changed. Right now, I feel like we're at peak food in the media in pop culture. There's so much good stuff, too much to name. All this to say that I think food is very much in pop culture. I highly recommend the Sporkful podcast. And I'm not going to talk too much about it because I don't want to just recap a podcast on our podcast, but it's a great podcast that talks about food in interesting ways. And I've been listening to it since it started for over a decade. And it has always been the host's dream to make a new pasta shape that hasn't existed in the world ever. And so there's a whole separate special on this workflow called Mission Impostable, which I highly recommend. He goes from start to finish on how do you make a new pasta shape? And I learned a lot about, I don't really know how dried pasta is made. What are the barriers to entry in like creating a new pasta shape? But all that is to say that he did it and then at the end, it was for sale. I am highly influenceable on buying things. I won't be like, and I loved it so much. Can you believe I bought it? Of course I went out and bought the bare minimum. You have to buy like eight boxes of this pasta to get it shipped to you. And it's already <laughs> sold out with a four month waiting list. Of course I did it. I am gullible, especially to marketing, to buying things. But it was delightful. It was a very good pasta and it did all the things he said it would do. So that's what showed up in my mail. What's, what's a, the shape? Oh, okay. It's a pop culture pasta and it is called Cascatelli, which means waterfall. Okay. And he made it, he said that there was, we needed a new pasta because there wasn't any pasta in the market that soaked up sauce really well that to where you didn't have to like had sauce left at the bottom it got all the sauce where you didn't have to go after the sauce yourself it had tooth sinkability had okay. a big bite to it and then it's just really fun it looks crazy it kind of looks like an alien this pasta when you cook it or like little squids it looks like little squids like little tentacles but it's cascatelli meaning waterfall and it's very good fascinating to me how difficult it is to make a new pasta shape. And then he did it really successfully. But I also want to ask you about pasta, Michelle, which is to say, do you have a favorite pasta shape? 
Oh, let me, I, I'm thinking hard now. Not the little spiral noodles. Those annoy me. Oh, I don't like those. Those are my, like probably my least favorite. So I feel like I feel like I have more strong negative feelings about specific pastas. Than- <laughs> well, you should definitely listen to this because he starts by basically trashing most pasta shapes. I think he says angel hair is like the most trash. Well, is it because it doesn't function as well? Like yeah, it's not a functional pasta. He wants yeah. a very functional. I don't like the pasta. feel of angel hair. I'll say that like I don't like the like there's very few times where I've been like, oh yeah, this seems like the best texture this could be if it had angel hair. So I'm, I'm on board with that. Very um, I think I like, I mean, like just like the shell, I would, that seems so boring and plain. I, but I, oh. And a bow tie. I like a good bow tie, like in a I pasta like salad. Bow tie. bow tie is in my top three, I would say. Top three. How, how high, how, how many are ranked in your list? I really like pasta. And then because I listened to this and thought about it so long and hard as I waited my four months. Um, oh man. Well, I have a top three and I think this would rank fourth or fifth. Cast okay. Number one would be pencil points. Sorry, rigatoni. I think it's called. My family calls them pencil points. It, but that's different than penne, right? It is. I think it's, isn't the difference. Oh my gosh. Is it a little narrower? How fascinating for our listeners. Penne. Yeah. Which does one have stripes on the side and one doesn't? I'm going to, I'm going to look up really quick. Penne versus rigatoni. Oh, versus ziti. (gasps) Let's talk about pasta comparing penne, ziti and rigatoni. Let's get these answers. Like, I think I've used all of these interchangeably. Oh, no. So, penne, ziti, and rigatoni are all hollow cylindrical pastas. Uh, penne, the ends are cut at an angle. And it comes in two variations, smooth or ridged. So, okay. it's, it's penne if it's cut at the, an angle at the end. Okay. So, ridged penne, number one. Ridged With penne, bullet. number one. Okay. I, that's probably what I use the most often. So... If it's just like usage, that's probably my number one as well. Ziti is, it comes from the Italian word for the betrothed because it is traditionally served as the first course at a wedding, Italian weddings. Um, It goes best with chunky sauces and meat dishes. And it is, has a smooth exterior and it's shorter and thicker than um, penne. And rigatoni is almost like, like the ridges are almost kind of spirally looking. Um, it is, sorry, I'm reading to, to summarize. Square no, cut rather than the pointy ends. Ah, trash. So yeah, ridged penne, number one. And then uh, then probably farfalle. Is that what bow ties are? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, I really like bucatini. Which one's that? What Bucatini is um like like spaghetti with a hole down the middle, like a oh tube, okay tube tube spaghetti. So yeah, um, I could probably I mean, where does ravioli and then does the filling matter in your ranking? I like tortellinis if we're talking about like yeah. I like forgot a, about tortellini. Like tortellini is my favorite thing to like make. Like I, I make like a like a Southwest pasta salad, um, and a Greek pasta salad. And I always use like cheese filled tortellinis as the base for those. And 
I almost feel like filled pastas need a different category. It's, its own thing. Of course, they're going to win. They're filled with Right. Stuff. They're filled with deliciousness. Because then the tortellini would be my number one. But I mean, then there. like, is it because the shape of the pasta allows it to be filled with deliciousness? So shouldn't that still count as you part of its that quality? It's like, a, yeah, it's, like, it's an advantage to it. It's like saying like, well, dresses with pockets should be in their own category. I'm like, but the fact that they have pockets makes them better. So. Oh my gosh. I have to rethink my whole ranking. And now it's like tortellini, <clears throat> ravioli, pencil points. <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've reshaped Catherine's world tonight. My, you rocked my world <laughs> with your filled pocket talk. <laughs> <laughs> but that's why pop culture is my pop culture pasta. I was uh, highly, highly uh, influenced by this podcast to buy the dream pasta of one Dan Pashman, host of The Sporkful. But it's a really, I, it's a good podcast. And it's, if you like food and you like listening to podcasts, which I mean, you're listening to us right now. So probably. And I don't mind being manipulated into marketing as long as I get something good at the end. Like if you're going to, if you're going to take me on a journey that makes me buy something, at least make it worthwhile. Right. Like, and it sounds like he, if sounds like he delivered. Listen, if anyone listens to that journey and you're worried, I would say it is solidly, it is, it is pasta that is exciting and does what he says it will do. No false advertising. No false advertising. Cascatelli. My pop culture thing is, I hope I'm pronouncing his stage name properly. I think it is Omi in a Hellcat. Do you know about this? No. Okay. So I did, I do not watch him. Um, he has a, so that is his YouTube name. His actual name is Omar Carasquillo. Um, and so he is in the news that I'm reading a New York Times article titled Those Fancy Cars He Flaunted on YouTube, a $30 million fraud, $30 million fraud scheme paid for them, U.S. says. Um, so this is a man. He is mostly known for his YouTuber person, persona, Omi and a Hellcat. And um, he is frequently on there flashing like lots of jewels. He has tons and tons of cars and he's bought up a lot of property, I think in the Philadelphia area, like the Philadelphia and New Jersey area. And um, so he is in a lot of trouble. Back in June, he posted a video titled The FBI is Back. And he filmed himself while he was wearing a quote, large diamond encrusted pendant that bore his brand name Reloaded. And he warned his almost 800,000 subscribers that the FBI had seized many of his assets, including 30 of his cars and millions of dollars from his bank account. And then he said, quote, I've been kind of depressed about it. So <laughs> what it, um, so the, the charges against him are that separate from YouTube, not on YouTube, but separately, he was running this business reloaded, which he often promoted on his YouTube channels. And it, is a um, illegal streaming service. So he was buying, he was paying for cable boxes and paying for access to it. And then he and some associates had created a, like a, basically a pirating platform and were selling for $15 a month subscriptions for people to get in and they could just access all of this content that was, so kind of like a, I don't quite understand all of the um, technicalities of it, 
I doubt anyone who isn't doing it does understand all the technicalities of it, but um, basically kind of like, like a Napster sort of, sort of deal. Um, but they went so far as to create like a, a whole catalog of, of it. So like you had almost like a, a TV guide style where you go through and pick which thing you wanted to watch. And it was, it was pretty sophisticated. Um, but what I wanted to talk about, cause I mean, it's obviously I could just say that there's, you know, crime, cool. There's a pop culture thing. You heard um, it here first, kids. Michelle says crime is cool. <laughs> but um, what drew, what made me pick this as my pop culture thing was this quote from Mr. Carasquillo's lawyer. Mr. Carasquillo tapped into a brand new unregulated industry and was very successful. Most people are called pioneers when they do that. Omar is called a criminal. The government assumes my client was not smart enough to do this legally because of his background. He is, and we will prove that. So um, the, the argument here um, is interesting. I kind of doubt it's gonna work, but um, Mr. Carasquillo had dropped out of school in the 11th grade. He is a black man. He was jailed for selling drugs in the 11th grade and that made him drop out. And um, by 2012, he was kind of starting to get things together. And he said in a previous YouTube interview that he sold drugs for the last time in 2014 because he was able to build this empire. And he, he sold DVDs for a while, like kind of bootleg DVDs. And then he went into this, what was originally called Gears TV. Um, and he was buying this gear on Amazon. And this is a quote from him. It was a straight streaming app. I wasn't stealing channels. I was paying for my cable boxes. I was paying for my cable service. And that's why I'm so comfortable talking about it. So he basically believes that like what he was doing was, I mean, it seems like he already had some of his um, materials compensated from the feds in the past. So probably you knew it wasn't okay because they had already taken them away once before but there's they're buying these encoders imported from china to strip the copyright protection off of it so that it can be streamed but so i reading this it seems pretty clear to me that this is a copyright infringement and that you are breaking laws but it did make me think the lawyer's argument which i'm not so sure is going to hold up in court here, but it did make me think about how many times I've read about like pioneers from other industries that we now hold up as these like, oh my goodness, weren't they such geniuses? And so many of them started their work with criminal behavior. Like even, um, so when I, I read Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers with a high school class that I'm teaching, and there's a, there's a chapter in there about Bill Gates and Bill Joy and how they, you know, were these, uh, you know, they created, Microsoft and really launched all of these technologies that we still use and that we built on. But they started out stealing time from a computer because they figured out that if they put in, like, I think it was like if they put in zero, 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 it didn't count their time because you're only supposed to have like an hour at a time in the giant computer lab at MIT or whatever. And so they basically hacked into the system to steal time. And like when they talk about it in interviews, it's all like, ha ha, isn't that so funny? And I'm like, okay, but if you had had a different set of circumstances and were caught doing that, we wouldn't just kind of laugh it off and be like, oh, isn't that cute? The kid's stealing time to figure out how to put all of this effort into coding. Yeah. Like who would have gotten kicked out of MIT for that? Right. And they, they were doing it as high schoolers because they oh. had gotten like, um, they somebody on his like sports team had access because the, their parents worked there or whatever. So it was all just like this. this... Who would have never been allowed into a college. Right. Right. 
And so um, it's just, it was just really interesting. This idea of like, who's his lawyer. I like that. Like that's a smart uh, on one level, it's a smart lawyer tactic, but on another level, yeah, we should be thinking about that. Dante Mills. Dante Mills is his lawyer. Here's to you, Dante Mills. And I'm well, and all of the like, you know, robber baron type, like anybody from that era of like the steel companies and the like, I mean, we just have built entire industries off of what started out as criminality and exploitation, which I don't think excuses the fact that, I mean, I, 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 on this very podcast, I've talked about how I'm very, like, I'm always really careful to pay for my media. Sometimes people make fun of me. They're like, obviously Michelle, like you don't have to, you know, like, but, but I think it's really important to pay creators. Um, And I was also just reading about how there, there might be a strike in the entertainment industry because of the streaming services that um, in particular, they're acting like this is all some big unknown, you know, like, Oh, we don't, we can't pay you as much if the TV shows on net on a streaming platform, right. because we can't be guaranteed. We're going to make money. And they're like, look at this point, these are established. This is the way that most people are getting their entertainment. You need to be paying us fair wage. Like this is not some experimental thing. You're making billions of dollars from it. We need to be getting a fair cut. And then like the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit, um, we're definitely seeing, you know, the ripple effects. And a lot of people in the comments of this particular article were kind of like, oh yeah, these big corporations have plenty of money to send a lawyer after him. So they're kind of focusing on the, the people at the top. Um, and not so much like the, the actors and the maybe more independent film places that are putting this out. And I, I don't know, it's an interesting conversation about, like almost kind of a Robin Hood feel to it, right? Like, is it okay yeah. to... When you said that, I thought like all those robber barons and that old money have been doing research, not for today, but into the cloisters, the Met cloisters in New York City, which are one of my favorite places to go. And um, most of that is sort of like JP Morgan and Rockefeller donated most of the money they it was their money that made like that institution a lot of the met is rockefeller money and over the summer when i saw my family we had that conversation about a lot you know oh robber barons are bad but a lot of the cultural institutions we have today and still have is from money that is going from that and we kind of looked up what percentage of their entire net worth and all their wealth individual and family did that group of people give to society versus like what is bezos giving what is elon musk giving oh my god it's i think that's that's a big change right it's um when we say oh well people whenever someone when people say don't tax the rich or no they earn that money let them have their money it's good to have rich people. The reasons why it was good to have rich people aren't there anymore. They're not, they're not holding up their end of the bargain, man. Right. Give me a museum, Jeff Bezos. One museum, Jeff Bezos. With the money you have, you could give me 500 million museums. Give us one really cool museum. You fuck. Sorry. <laughs> so sorry. But yeah, all those questions definitely are, are in the air. And I think it's a... Dante Mills raises a very good point about all those stories. 
I don't know. Which again, I don't want to come across as like, it's fine. It's fine for this man to just like pirate all of this stuff and use it to buy 30 cars. I'm not saying that, but I do think that there are just interesting questions about who we decide is doing something innovative and creative and who we decide is doing something criminal when often the they're doing the same kinds of things, right? Absolutely. Research. Research. So this is something I'm very excited to talk about. Went to the North Carolina Museum of Art over the summer, and it's a very solid museum. I just had a great time at the museum And it reminded me of something I wanted to share on this podcast, which is something I like to teach so much. It was the first time I learned that some of my students were keeping a notebook full of quotable quotes that I said, which (laughs) horrified me. (laughs) We used to have one of those. We did. We had a quote book. We did have a quote. So maybe this is just the thing. I, yeah, I need to lean into it about quotable quotes. Yeah. They were like, yeah, that's going to go in the quote book. As soon as I said it, I was like in the middle of class, I'm like what quote book, what are you talking about? So we'll get, to, so basically the quote is, I don't know where to start into this story. I was already like, I'm at the museum and I've jumped. Um, the quote that we are going to research today by one Catherine Guinness is see the piss. So I was at the museum and I re- recalled how much I love paintings in which you should see the piss. Now, I said this in my class as like a larger lesson about viewing art, which is that um, art is weird, man. Art's weird. And people who make art are weird. And we look at these Italian Renaissance paintings or ancient Roman vessels and we think, well, that's classical art. So it's educational and cool and classical and normal and nothing weird or sexy or anything happening here to the point where even some art historians won't talk about it or talk about what you're seeing in an image to the point where you can walk into a museum and not see these things happening. One that I myself had missed that I saw this time was I went in and there were two little Roman babies. They kind of looked like cupids. They could have been Romulus and Remus. The thing just said, two young Roman children play. But I looked at it. I looked at it closer. And one Roman child was fully holding a seed pod while the other Roman child held his little Roman penis and peed all over it. So one little Roman baby is holding up a seed pod while the other little Roman baby pees all over it. Why is this happening? And that didn't make it into the description at all. They're just playing. No, they're just playing. But there is fully like arcs of urine. He's peeing all over the seed pod. And it reminded me of this, the see the piss. So what I, one of the ones I like to teach in the Italian, when I teach the Italian Renaissance, it's a Venetian painting is by Lorenzo Lotto. And it's a painting called Venus and Cupid from 1520. Speaking of the Met, this is in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's pretty prominently displayed. And I really would like to know how many people that walk by it every day see the piss. And so it's a beautiful painting, Venus, who is the mother of Cupid. 
is kind of lounging nude. And Cupid is holding a wreath, like a, just a wreath of greenery. And again, holding his little baby Cupid penis and peeing through the wreath onto Venus. <laughs> so that's weird, right? That is weird. We have a painting of a young child aiming through a decorative through a wreath. wreath so he can pee on his mom. <laughs> um, what the Met says about it <clears throat> is in his inimitable fashion, in this unique masterpiece, Lorenzo Lotto takes one of the most popular subjects of Venetian painting and gives it a witty and humorous twist. Naughty Cupid urinates on his mother through a laurel wreath. So at least they do talk about it. <laughs> so when I first saw that, because I was showing in my class um, the different ways that Venus is painted throughout time again and again, which is fascinating to watch how painters depict Venus throughout the history of art is great. Um, and there are especially great paintings, talking about pee too much, paintings um, with Venus and all her infidelities. She's married to Vulcan, if you don't know that mythology, while Cupid is the son of Mercury. Venus also had a tryst with Mars. And there are so many good paintings showing all of that drama. But basically, if you try to be like, well, why is she getting peed on? And you do that research, the most I could find was, uh, it has to do with fertility or something. Don't worry about it. Fertility is something with fertility. When babies pee on you, it's about fertility? They're about fertility, which is kind of one of those not seeing the piss things in art history that kind of get explained away. Oh, it's fertility. Don't worry about it. It's a fertility thing, which is kind of what I did with my class because I'm like, do you see this? What's happening? I did it as a cold reading to see if they would actually see it and tell me about it. And then they were like, well, yeah, what is it? And I found myself going, um, fertility. <laughs> but I researched and researched and it really is kind of um, what, what the Lorenzo Lotto painting is, was it's a, it was a wedding portrait and it was a wedding gift in a way. So the Venus kind of looks like the woman who was getting married and so maybe, yeah, maybe she did. This was like, here, like good We're luck. wishing you children, like the way that like when you have a baby shower and it's like how many bows you break or how many kids you're going to have, like a kind of like wishing you the mischief of a child in your future kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, because Venus is love, so love and marriage. And here's her baby, which is the baby of all babies, Cupid, right? But then I was like, okay, but he's peeing on her? Right. But then I saw these little babies at the North Carolina Museum of Art. And I don't know if I'll be able to describe it. I might have had some like treats from Colorado that are more legal in Colorado than they are in North Carolina when I went to this museum trip, which helped me have this discovery. So let me try to explain it soberly. But my brain just went, I get it. Because looking at the little baby holding a seed pod and peeing on it, well, like, yeah, we have we have to remember that um, our understanding and being able to like microscope sperm and know what that is and know it wasn't like in the late 1800s, doctors and medical medical experts still thought like the whole baby was in the head of a sperm. And that was like a little 
they would say it's well it's a little astronaut that just gets rocketed into the space of the womb and grows and a woman has nothing to do with it screw you women it's all us you're a you're just a vessel we hate you um verbatim verbatim quote verbatim. Of literature medical doctors <laughs> but right we didn't so if we didn't know anything then we they didn't know but like right if you are thinking about how does someone get pregnant, well, there's sperm and egg. And how, if you want to be funny, which definitely medieval art was very scatological and funny, well, how do you show that? And it's like, well, they're not going to show a man ejaculating right. on a wooden altarpiece, but they showed a little baby peeing. That's a liquid that comes out of there. And a seed pod, right? Yeah. They knew, like a woman and like um, seeds. So it actually is kind of a uh, fertility. And it is that, oh, uh, that's stupid and that simple of just liquid on a seed. But it, it makes me laugh and I love art and I love those little moments. And so it is kind of, yeah, about fertility. And so then if you think about the laurel wreath, that's, it's about penetration, yeah. right? But then it makes it, you know, his his mother I don't know there's well still some disturbing right. yes open your eyes to how disturbing Venus and Cupid are sometimes yeah. portrayed everybody um see the piss there but all that to say that I did get very excited about this topic in class once and I'm like yeah nobody even really talks about it right guys you have to see the piss and now there are um a medley of decorative buttons that have that Lorenzo Lato painting on it with the see words the see the piss but you should, you should go in a museum and really, really look because all these details are so fun. And I don't know if we have enough fun with art sometimes. And sometimes we're holding it up with this, like, I was just talking about this with the students that I'm, um, I'm teaching the classics and film class. And we were talking about the canon and whether we should have a canon and all of that. And um, part of what we talked about is just like when we hold things up with this reverence, we don't look at them well, right? Like we don't, yeah. we, we don't have the fun with them. We can't um, play with them and remix them in the ways that we can if we break down that kind of reverence. If we're just like, hey, look, this is a text. And maybe, you know, it does some specific things that are representative in a way that is important, but it's still just a text at the end of the day, right? Like it's still just, it's, it's here. It's here for us to play with. It's part of the landscape. I think I was even doing that too much when I was looking for answers in this. I'm like, well, it has to be something really, something so much more. And then I was like, oh no, I think it, it I think it's a sperm joke. <laughs> <laughs> but this is research. And so I was desperately trying to find the name because I took a picture of the um, the seed pod painting, but I did not take a picture of the title. So I was Googling various things to try to find it. And to just tighten up my research a little, I did find a very interesting history of urine and pregnancy and the history of how we use our urine to understand pregnancy. So while I just said there's no deeper meaning here, it's funny. Maybe there is a deeper meaning linking the liquid of urine, not sperm, to pregnancy because we all know now that you can pee on, a, that you pee on a stick to see if you're pregnant. Basically, I found that people have found papyrus texts from Egypt dating back to 1400 BCE 
which directs women who want to know if they are pregnant or not to fill a bag with barley and then a bag with wheat. And that could be like a translation is that that exact type of grain, but basically some kind of grain, two kinds of grain and to pee on both of them. And if they sprout, you're pregnant. And then, and then depending on which one sprouts, it will tell you the sex of the baby. So fascinatingly enough, telling the gender of the baby, they were not correct on. But the National Institute of Health conducted a study in 1963, found that that method is 70% accurate. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. And so much better than the like rabbit test. So much better. You don't have to kill anything. You just get some sprouted seeds. So the the study said, you know, modern pregnancy tests rely on proteins that can can detect the hormone HCG. But scientists speculate that this old timey test worked because elevated levels of estrogen in a woman's urine might have promoted seed growth. That is fascinating. Yep. And when the researchers who are still researching this found that this didn't disappear when the Library of Alexandria burned, because by that time, because it was such a good way and people have always wanted to know about pregnancy and reproductive health, because it's important that that knowledge had already made its way all over the African continent and beyond and the Greeks and Romans did pick it up from there somehow. So that idea about urine linked with pregnancy, they would have known for these paintings maybe. And I will say, um, I read more and one of these researchers named Glenn Brownstein described the wheat and barley test as the first home pregnancy test, which then led to in the middle ages, the real title of doctors who helped you know if you were pregnant piss prophets that's what they were called piss prophets and they would diagnose like prophecy because i heard prophets like they're going to go make money off of these wheat and barley beds <laughs> profit it off the oh, make some cash <laughs> no prophets prophecy yeah. um so they would diagnose pregnancy by looking at urine and they would look at the color or sometimes they would mix it with wine and then i learned And we know this, so speaking of what good is art, what can we learn from it, let's break it down. But art is really important a lot for like scientific knowledge, for knowledge of what tools we had, especially scientific tools, because a lot of times they just show up in the background or scenes of everyday life, you go to visit the doctor. So there's a painting by Dutch painter Jan Steen called The Doctor's Visit, showing a woman undergoing one of these tests that they would soak a ribbon in the woman's urine and then burn it in front of her. And if the smell made her gag or throw up or pass out, she was pregnant. (laughs) So if the smell of your own burning urine bothers you, you might be pregnant. But it's a very cool painting and it shows that happening. So... Does that one have any, um, you know, like actual, like the, like the wheat and barley did? Because that seems, seems like a stretch. (laughs) No, that's, no. Um, The Egyptians had it right. Vice.com, the history of peeing on things to find out if you're pregnant. And I will link that in the show notes. And 
just very impressed with the ancient 70% accurate. That's yeah. I mean, that's amazing. That's yeah. So see the piss, go to a museum and um, just this little thing. Look beyond your awe. Look, don't just say like, there's a naked woman. See if someone's peeing on her. (laughs) Could be her son. (laughs) Yay art. Oh, all right. My research thing is. (laughs) Your face just fell? Like, there is a really good thing in here. It's just not together yet. It is not gelled, but I think it is a meaningful topic. Maybe we'll get there today or not. Um, But it grew out of our discussion last time when we were talking about hope and hope punk and um, the frustrate, like the you watching the, the White Lotus and feeling like, yes, absolutely. This is terrible nihilistic view. I'm down for it. And me being like, no, I can't handle that. Um, so I had that in the back of my mind. And I was reading Brene Brown's Dare to Lead, which is um, a really famous, like self-helpy kind of book. Um, and I... I I have a love-hate relationship with self-help. I, I think I've talked about that here before, and I've definitely we've definitely talked about it before. Um, I consume a lot of self-help texts, but with uh, like I hardly ever like them. <laughs> I don't know, like uh, it's like I continue to want something that isn't there, and I'm often very disappointed. But every once in a while, I find a good one. Like I would say, like maybe ten percent of all the self-help books I read, do I actually feel like yes, that gave me something worthwhile? Um, but this one is definitely one of the 10%. I, I feel like um, this it's, it is really meaningful. In particular, this piece of it um, from, this is from the rumbling with vulnerability section of it. And this is number six of armored leadership hiding behind cynicism. And I'm just going to read a section of this. Cynicism and sarcasm are first cousins who hang out in the cheap seats, but don't underestimate them. They often leave a trail of hurt feelings, anger, confusion, and resentment in their wake. I've seen them bring down relationships, teams, and cultures when modeled by people at the highest level and or left unchecked. Like most hurtful comments and passive aggressiveness, cynicism and sarcasm are bad in person and even worse when they travel through email or text. And in global teams, culture and language differences make them toxic. I mean, the word sarcasm is from the Greek word sarcasing, which means to tear flesh, tear flesh. And so the idea here, this whole book is about how to be a good leader, like how to be um, a good leader of a team, how to communicate clearly, how to avoid kind of pettiness and infighting with your group, how to how to maintain productivity. And in this, um, the, a little bit later on the same section, If what's under cynicism and sarcasm is despair, the antidote is cultivating hope. According to the research of C.R. Snyder, hope isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. He actually defines it as a cognitive emotional process that has three parts. And the three parts are goal, pathway, agency. So um, there's research, Snyder did all this research into like, how do you cultivate hope? How do, what, what makes hope exist? And that it kind of goes along with what you were saying last time about hope being a practice, right? That hope is something that you have to like commit to and wake up and do. And so I went and looked into um, Snyder's uh, research a little bit and I found this um, 
the trait hope scale, which I need to read a little bit more on how to use it. Cause I'm certainly like not a trained psychologist. She's like, let me psychologize you real quick, but I am, I'm going to share the screen so that you can see it. So it has these questions. It's pretty simple. You just say one through eight for definitely false, mostly false, somewhat false, slightly false, slightly true, somewhat true, mostly true, or definitely true. And the questions are things like, I can think of many ways to get out of a jam. I am easily down in an argument. I can think of many ways to get the things in life that are important to me. I meet the goals that I set for myself. Um, And there are like in the notes for how to administer it, there are subscales. So the agency subscale is items two, nine, and 10 and 12, which are all about kind of how much control you have. So like the questions for that are, I energetically pursue my goals. My past experiences have prepared me well for my future. I've been pretty successful in life and I meet the goals I set for myself. It's a very goal setting and like reflecting on the past for how it's gonna affect the future. And then the pathway subscale is items one, four, six, and eight. So one, I can think of many ways to get out of a jam. Four, there are lots of ways around any problem. Six, I can think of many ways to get the things in life that are important to me. And eight, even when others get discouraged, I know I can find a way to solve the problem. So really like whether you accept an obstacle as kind of shutting down, or if you are somebody who looks beyond those obstacles and kind of starts to consider different ways. And so this is a scale that they would use to kind of measure where somebody's hopefulness is and where they might need to build it. So that whether it was a, if they had a low overall hopefulness score, if it was from agency or if it was from pathway, so that the cultivation of that hope could be kind of directed in the area where it needed the most support. So all of that to say that I was thinking about this because I um, I am in leadership positions in ways that I have not been in previous parts of my life because I spent most of my life in academia, which is often, I mean, it's funny because I think in academia, there, there are a lot of titles of leadership position, but often <laughs> just, yeah, yep. But, Sorry to interrupt, but yes, yes, yep. But uh, often the leadership that, at least from my experiences of academia, the leadership of academia is often very siloed and um, very like artificial. So that a lot of times the people who are, and I'm not, I'm not saying this doesn't happen in like, corporations or whatever. I'm sure that it does, but I feel like it's kind of baked into the system of academia in a way that, especially with the kind of admin faculty split that you, you'll have like the people who are kind of doing the day-to-day labor of the, of academia are not communicating with the people who are doing the decision-making about how that labor is done in a way that is just bizarre. And if you're not part of that system, it's really even, it doesn't even make sense. Like when I try to talk to, uh, like whenever I would, when I was a full-time faculty member and I would try to talk to my partner who is a lawyer, he's like, why is that happening? Like, why is it set up like that? Like, um, and so I personally had never had any interest in being in administration. I did end up in some admin roles because as you're trying to do service to, you know, like it just, 
it, but, but people were always trying to push me into like, well, you should be chair or you should be this, or you, maybe you can be a Dean someday. I'm like, I just want to teach my classes. Um, so I have always kind of resisted being in formal leadership roles because I just like doing my own thing a lot. Um, and I think that academia really trained me for mm-hmm. that. Like academia was very much like you take your project over here and you go do it. And yes, you do have to come together and do these, this committee work and things, but it was always sort of adjacent to what I felt was like my primary work. And so now that I am um, running a, a business with, with teachers who work on a platform that I run, I, I have had to start thinking about uh, leadership in a way, which is why I'm reading this book. I've, I'm having to think about leadership in a way that I haven't had to think about much before. And um, in particular, where it's coming forward is in trying to give instructions to delegate some of the tasks that I'm doing so that somebody else can do them. And um, I just, it's really hard. It's really, really, really hard to do a respectful and thorough and not condescending job of being like, this is how these tasks need to be accomplished. And this book, this um, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead, has a specific section on that. And um, it's called the task method, the T-A-S-C. So to whenever you are giving a task to ask the question, one, T, who owns the task? Two, A, do they have the authority to be held accountable? Three, S, do we agree that they are set up for success with time, resources, and clarity? And four, C, do we have a checklist of what needs to happen to accomplish the task? And one of the most helpful things from this that I took away was the question for that has to do with um, kind of that C, that checklist, which is like, what does done look like? And so to ask the question, yeah. and, and she gives all these examples. All those questions, I have to say, were wildly refreshing. And I'm just like, my mind is a little blown. Like if you were asked those in academia in a way that someone genuinely was like, and we will help you do that. <laughs> oh my God. Right. I spent, I, I spent the morning on the phone with someone who just couldn't get a key to somewhere for like, just a, it was like, a, oh my God, it was like an escape room, Michelle. <laughs> Because it was just See, not that's even, why we're so drawn to escape rooms. That's why we're drawn our whole to our whole rooms. lives have been escape rooms. I just unlocked everything because <laughs> it wasn't even my problem. They were just complaining to me because it was something that used to be my problem. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So like that, who's who owns this task? Whose job is this? Do they have the authority to actually be given that task? Do they have the tools to succeed at it? And then how do will we know when it's done? And that piece. So I had to create. Uh, I won't get into too into the weeds in this, but I, there was a system that I had for getting classes listed and I'm handing that over to somebody else. And so I had to take this complicated, but not necessarily difficult process that mm-hmm. I have been doing just in my own head and turn it into a set of instructions. And it was really, really hard. And I realized that because for a long time, I've been reflecting like, Am I having trouble handing over this task because I want control of it? Like, I'm like, why am I having such a hard time handing over this task? Like, is it me wanting to control it? And I'm like, I don't care about, like, I mean, not that I don't care about it. I care that it's done right, but I do not feel like I am even the best person to do this. I certainly do not feel like I have to do this or it won't be done right. Like, I don't, I do not feel that about this. Um, 
But I'm like, so then why am I delaying handing this over? Like what is happening? And it was because it was so hard to explain to somebody how to do it. And so I really like going through this checklist made me how, like, I was like, okay, what does done look like? And if I started from that question, then I could, I could say, all right, if I told somebody else, this is what done looks like, what questions would they ask me for how to get there? And then I, I kind of worked backwards from there and I created You just unlocked. What, what did I just unlock? You just unlocked one of the main reasons why AI and machine learning have went leaps and bounds in the past 20 years. Because they know what done looks like? Basically, like Alan Turing started this. He kind of theorized it and put it a little into practice, but didn't, it's things like neural networks do it now, really. But the reason like machine learning is so good and errors are so good is it used to be, if we want to program a, a software or a program or a machine to do something, if you want to program a robot to unlock a door, the way we approached it for a long time was every step, every yeah, step that I would step. do, he said, no, that's not the way to do it. You have to, um, it, you have to approach it like it's like a child's mind and then educate it and then throw the problem at it and say, you, you solve it. How would you solve this problem? By just showing them what the completed task looks like. And by then letting the machine figure out how it needs to get there. Because our way of getting there might not be the, most the best way, but if we show it, here's the task, here's completion, here's what completion is. And then they practice, practice, practice till they get it. They get it so much faster. And then we don't even have to program any steps at all. We and they innovate it. things that we wouldn't have thought to do. Yeah. So, so what I ended up doing for this was I, I went in, I did my process myself while taking notes and then I did it again and recorded it. And then I realized that recording was a mess. So then I did it a third time with like a much cleaner recording, but I broke it into these steps. And at each step, I was like, this is what matters most here. Like, and this is how I did it, but this is what matters most. Cause like, I'm trying to say like, you know, if you end up finding a different way to do it, fine. But like, here is, so I, I, and I think, but I mean, it took a lot of time. It took a lot of time to do it well, but I'm pretty proud of what came out of that. And the thing that this made me think about as far as like, um, I, I was thinking about perspective taking, because I think that all of this stuff we're talking about, like the hope and the cynicism and the nihilism and a hope punk and you mentioned braiding sweetgrass and you read that quote about um, this is not the first time someone has faced the end of the world, right? Like mm. it just made me think a lot about how I our ability to overcome adversity and to be strong in the face of the kind of collective disasters we're talking about, I think is going to require a perspective taking that we're not very good at, right? That we just, that it does not come naturally to us. And that we are going to, and when I'm saying us, I mean like as a as a species, like as a collective, right? That we Homo sapiens. Yes. Homo sapiens tend to see the world where we stand, right? That like until it touches us, we don't we don't respond to it. And I mean, there's tons and tons of studies into this, right? Like even just how proximity, like if something happens in our town, then we'll pay more attention to it than if it happened you know, in one state over, and we're like, well, then that doesn't matter, even though in neither one is more effective to our individual lives. Like we just like proximity will make a connection. Right. Um, or, um, well, the, like the case right now with the woman who was 
found murdered in the oh yeah and how that's getting all this attention but there's there's all these like uh native women who are missing and nobody's paying it like they can't get any like there's so many examples of how we are limited in our perspective taking that we tend to look at the world through our own limited lenses and i think I think I'm building out a theory that is not fleshed out yet at all, that if we want to kind of put that hope punk philosophy into effect, that it's going to take something like what what Snyder was talking about, the, this like intentional building of hope through this agency pathway process kind of thing, but also a step where you are able to say, what does done look like? for someone else who isn't doing this task. And like, like, I think these things all go together somehow. And I, I, I don't know exactly how yet, but I feel like there's something meaningful and worthwhile in placing these things next to each other. I also, I'm going to stumble around a little, but I, I think you're absolutely right. Like a, the hope homework, which is very much that it's a practice. It's something you can work on. It's not just holding a feather and say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. It's not a moral failing in any way. It's, it's, it's something you cultivate. But then that idea of the proximity, that idea of, I think the proximity can also be linked in some ways to control. And what you were saying about it wasn't that you were afraid to cede control but you didn't know how to hand it over. And yet, like you said, something's got to give for homo sapiens. And part of that, maybe the handing over of something beyond ourselves is so conflated with seething control that we don't know how to untangle those in the way you just learned that it's not that. It's not seething control it's understanding how to pass that knowledge on productively. I'm right now part of a project that kind of did the same thing without knowing it, where I had a meeting with someone else and it's this huge collective project. A lot of people were running into problems and it's not going to go the way we wanted it to go. There's a lot of tragedy of the commons where people aren't doing work and some people are doing more work, but We finally said, we're only going to be doing this for so long. How do we hand it over to someone? If we don't figure out a way now, while we're only halfway through it, to hand it over and what that looks like, it will die. And all the work we're doing now will be for nothing. And that was one of the first times where I was really working on something that I stopped to say, like, what is this for? And do I want to keep working on it? if there isn't a longer term thing that has nothing to do with me. Yes. Yeah. Oh, because I, so, and this, the examples in here are all very corporate, all very based on like uh, a task that is built within, you know, a job, right. Built within work. But I'm, I'm thinking about this application more broadly. Like I'm thinking about this application for like, you know, I think part of what makes us, not want to handle something like a pandemic or not want to handle something like climate change is because we know that it won't be done in our lifetimes, right? And so if we can't even imagine what done looks like, then it just feels like it's pointless to try to do it because 
you can't, you can't imagine handing it off. Right. And so if it's like, if you can't imagine handing it off, then what's the point of trying to do it? Because it cannot be accomplished here and now. And so really, I think that that combination of being able to recognize what it would take to hand it off responsibly, I think it's almost like a stewardship thing, right? How do you take care of your peace long enough to, and that goes back to like, you know, we talked last time about like the rust coal speech and the, you just need to punch your hole through the darkness. It's not your responsibility to do all of it. Right. Um, but in that case, you're just like, you're one punch through and then it, you know, somebody else is doing theirs separately, but this is more like a baton, like that you're passing and you're, you're kind of building it generation to generation and person to person. And there's a string of responsibility where that's passed along. And I think that the phrase here that's coming out of Dare to Lead that that Brene Brown talks about is paint done. And so instead of saying, what does done look like? um, She says, so here, I'll just read it. Paint done. For us, it's significantly more helpful than what does done look like because it unearths self-expectations and unsaid intentions. And it gives the people who are charged with the task tons of color and context. It fosters curiosity, learning, collaboration, reality checking, and ultimately success. So the paint done is where the person who is ultimately assigning the task, the one who is responsible for saying like, here, this is yours, now you do it. The boss, basically, doesn't just say, here's the task and here's what done looks like. They say, here's the task. Here's what I think done looks like. Here's what matters to me. Here's what I'm trying to achieve. Here's where I'm feeling vulnerable and nervous about it. And then often, like she gives tons of examples, the other person goes, oh, wait, I have a better way to do that. Or, oh, you didn't think about this. If we do it this way, these are the problems that are going to come up that you don't know about because you don't know what happens over here in this department that you you are never in because that's not where you see this working. Like, um, for instance, she gives an example of she tells somebody to pull invoices together or somebody told her, pull these invoices together. And she says, okay. And two hours later, she gives them to them. And he says, well, I needed these back to 2005 and in date order, you didn't do that. And she's like, well, you didn't tell me that, right? So like just this, there, one person's idea of what get invoices together looked like was very different than the other person's. But then she says, if they do the paint done, they say, pull everything. Uh, so, hey, pull all the invoices together. Okay, paint done for me. I need everything back to 2005, put them in date order. And then that's the whole picture. Yeah, I need to track expenses for two books. Wait, I don't understand. We didn't track expenses on invoices before 2007. You'll need separate receipts because this person knows that because this person knows that system. And so once they knew why they were doing this task and what the ultimate goal was, they were able to say, that's not going to work. And then, um, so the example was, well, can you get those? Can you get those separate receipts? Yeah, but not by four. What specifically do you need for this meeting? paint done for me. And so then they give this example of, well, what I need for this, what I'm trying to prove is this. And like, I have a different way to do that. If you can help me clear my calendar for these two hours, I'm going to get you the, what you need. Like, so it gave more agency and autonomy to the person who actually had ownership over the task, but they had this shared vision that happened through really quick communication. Um, but room for pushback, that room for vulnerability. Oh my gosh, that's so helpful. Yeah. And I just, I think that we need more opportunities to hand things over with the understanding, like, just because we didn't figure them all the way out doesn't mean that we didn't do a good job. We were having a separate conversation about when does 
a collaborative project feel worthwhile. And so few mm-hmm. of them have for me in my life. Like often I feel overwhelmed by collaborating. And I think that these things that we're talking about right now are at the heart of the collaborations in my life that have felt good and meaningful and worthwhile. And the lack of them is what is at the heart of collaborations that have felt frustrating and futile and not worth my time. And Absolutely. so, so that's my research. So we have, I need to read all this book. I've never touched a self-help book that you have so, recommended. But. I will. I mean, I will say that like, I like Renee Brown's work and this is not the only thing from her that I've read or listened to. Um, but it is, I mean, self-help just requires a kind of, like you just have to be like, okay, I'm going to accept these buzzwordy kind and of like, but you got to get past the, if, if you have my sensibilities, my aesthetic tastes, you got to drill through the veneer a little bit. Um, <laughs> but off, I mean, I, I am finding this immensely helpful and immediately applicable to my life. So it is worth dealing with a little bit of sappiness on the outside. You're like, oh, here's something I can use to make my life better. I will take that. Thank you. Let's go over everything. Okay. How to get revenge on chickens. (laughs) Ducks. Ducks. How to make Ducks pay, which is unfortunately just making them profitable, not revenge-based. We have how weird vocal cords are. So weird. So weird. I bet I'm going to have a dream about that image of vocal cords tonight. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, we, in pop culture, we learned about pasta, the new, brand new to the world, Cascatelli shape. And Omi and a Hellcat, the YouTuber who is has had almost all of his stuff seized by the feds for illegal streaming. And then for research, I talked about, you know, see the piss. And I talked about painting done. I feel like how many times have we been had a had a version of like, look at it from a different angle? <laughs> um Painting, paint done. I talked about paintings. But that's where paintings end. Although I will say, I think I have disqualified fortune cookie entries from being too repetitive. And like, see the world from a different angle led last week to telescoping in your head, Fortnite, last Fortnite, telescope around in your head because I'm like, we can't keep saying that. But boy, howdy, if like, see the piss was like, look at things closer and paint done was like, you know, things closer, look at things closer. And then don't just buy this book because you think you're going to get revenge on ducks. You need to look at it closer. Look at it closer. Literally looked at the vocal cords closer. He did look at them too close, too close. Uh, the pasta, they took a very close look at the pasta to figure out how to make it like that was such a close look. Like he, the sparkle is known for like very minute, but hard held opinions. Like, should you put the cheese on the top or bottom of a cheeseburger and they will have fights about it. So the pasta boy, howdy, that was a deep dive. And then it is like, yeah, it depends on how you look at it, right? The 
the um, person the criminality. The argument is that's in some in some origin stories that's heroic. It's not criminal. It's um, being clever. so. It's like look closer. So something. I feel like I'm I'm conflating look closer with like two sides, like a flipping or a duality, like duck rabbit. I don't I don't think necessarily looking closer has to flip a duality. Like, cause I think in the the seat of piss, I don't think that duality was there. Like I think that True. that like that's what it was. Like you were just ignoring it before. Like it wasn't like you had to like necessarily Right. It was always there to see. The painting, the the Lotto painting at the Met is very big and very prominently displayed. And like the paint done, like I kind of feel like I shouldn't need a self-help book to tell me that if I'm giving somebody a task, figuring out what the task should end up looking like. Like, I don't know. Like, again, I feel like it's kind of already there, but you just get so lost in your own stuff that you don't you got to get out of the weeds to like see it, right? Get out of the weeds or pee on the weeds to see if you're pregnant. <laughs> Either get out of the weeds. What is it? Get off the pot, piss or get off the pot. <laughs> pee on the weeds or get off of them. <laughs> so that you can look better. Pee on the weeds or get off of them so that you can truly see. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine if I opened a fortune cookie and it just said pee on the weeds or get out of them. Pee on the weeds or get out of them. We have to stop letting me say the the things. <laughs> so I do like pee on the pee on the weeds or get out of them. Um that's the message I'm gonna remember from this. That's that's where I'm gonna that that's the thing I'm gonna I say. I mean, we talked it through. Like everyone, you know what we mean. Like yeah. look more closely. And think about different. Look more closely. And if that closer look makes you go, oh, I've had this wrong, then don't be afraid to change it. Right? Yeah. And oftentimes it's not that it's like a whole different thing. It's not a whole flipped over thing. It is what it is, but you need a different perspective. You need to get out of the weeds. Yeah. Pee on them. Pee on the weeds or get out of them. I I accept it. Yes. Yeah, I'm gonna make a button with my button machine. Oh, can you send it to me? I want to. Yeah. I want to. Can that be one of the weird things you send to me with no context? Yes, I'm gonna wait long enough that you forget, and then you're gonna get a box full of a dozen buttons that say "pee on the weeds" or "get out." Of get off. Okay, well, everyone. Until then, and if you want to buy that merch, let's get a merch. <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, <laughs> no, not doing it. Um, but if you ever send us a grab, if you send us a grab bag and you want a button that says pee on the weeds or get off, I'll give you one. And maybe that's an incentive for grab bags. Yeah, please send us some grab bags. What's what's happening? I, we know you're out there. We know you're listening. Does it have something to do with like the first few people that did grab bags were like, this is so scary and intimidating. It doesn't need to be scary and intimidating. We'll read it. You can just write it. Just write it. We'll read it to you. But until next fortnight, have a good fortnight. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.